This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Would you ever confess to a crime you didn't commit? The prevalence of false confessions has been a crack in the foundation of criminal justice throughout history, from the Salem witch trials to the Central Park jogger case. However, Dr. Allison Redlick says that it's only recently been the main subject of research. The modern era of false confession scholarship probably began in the early 1980s with the seminal research by Dr. Saul Kasson, but people started to research more and understand more about the modern day interrogation tactics employed by interrogators in the United States. Redlick is a distinguished university professor in the Department of Criminology, Law, and Society at George Mason University. She says that the Innocence Project, a nonprofit working to free people who've been wrongly convicted, helped to catapult this topic into mainstream research. And in order to understand why people admit to something they didn't do, we first have to look at the methods law enforcement uses to get a confession. A court case in the 1890s was the first to set a precedent of confessions needing to be given freely and without coercion or threats. Then in the 1930s, it was decided that the use of physical force was unlawful. So they really outlawed physical tactics like whipping defendants and, and things that are suspects in the interrogation room. And when that was banned, interrogators had to have a new approach. And that approach has grown into today what we call the accusatorial approach. This method is primarily used in the U.S. and Canada. Redlick says it's evolved from a system called the Reed Technique in the 1950s, which brings a more psychological and manipulative approach to interrogations. It can be broken down into two phases, the interview and the interrogation. In the interview stage, interrogators are taught to ask diagnostic questions to determine if, let's say, a person of interest at this point is uh, lying or telling the truth. And they do this by asking these series of questions and trying to read or interpret the answers, but also looking to nonverbal and verbal cues to what people are saying. However, if you listen to our recent segment on big liars, you may know that research shows that nonverbal cues are often unreliable. Most people cannot accurately interpret these physical signs to see who's guilty and who's innocent. But if an officer decides the suspect seems guilty, they move into the interrogation phase. So by definition, interrogations are what we call guilt presumptive and I think we all have a sense of this self-fulfilling prophecy, confirmation biases, and when people or interrogators go into an interrogation already believing that the person is guilty, even though this is an innocent person who's been misidentified as guilty, it becomes a very dangerous situation for that innocent suspect and can lead to false confessions. 
And though confessions need to be given freely, it's legal for law enforcement to lie to suspects in order to gain information. One of the key techniques, individual techniques that have been identified in false confession cases are when the police lie to suspects, which they are legally allowed to do. But it creates confusion. It can lead to these internalized false confessions. Which is one of three main types of false confessions. The first type is called voluntary false confessions, which is when a person has full knowledge that they're taking the blame for something they didn't do. The quintessential examples are either to protect the true perpetrator. So, for example, it's a father who wants to protect their son who's been accused, or it's a fellow gang member who wants to protect another gang member who may be subject to less punishment because they're a juvenile, for example. The other main type are people who want to gain infamy. It's been nearly impossible to ignore the rise in true crime documentaries in recent years. No matter if a case was solved 50 years ago or is still being investigated, millions of people across the nation are glued to their TVs, watching it unfold in the comfort of their own homes. Unfortunately, some viewers see the national media coverage and decide they want that attention for themselves. One example is the Lindbergh kidnapping that occurred in 1932. I think more than 200 people came forward to try and take credit for that crime, just really simply to gain infamy. And in more recent times, you may recall the John JonBenet Ramsey case that's never really been solved. And think about in the early 2000s, mid-2000s, John Mark Carr came forward and tried to take credit for that crime, and they were able to demonstrate that he was indeed not the perpetrator. The other type, course internalized, are suspects who, through the interrogation process, come to believe that they've actually committed the crime. And, you know, they may be led to believe that they just don't remember committing it, but there's incriminating evidence against them. Suspects are convinced that they did the crime, even if they have no memory of it. However, Redlick says that as soon as they're allowed to leave the interrogation room, most people realize the truth. But by then, it's too late. The third type of false confessions is called coerced compliant false confessions. Both of these are induced through the police interrogation process. And the coerced compliant are folks who are suspects who know that they are innocent, but in order to escape this noxious situation that may last for hours, they realize that the only way to get out of this room is to give a false confession. And they believe that, you know, once I'm out of this room, I'm going to be able to demonstrate my innocence and, you know, I just need to extract myself from the situation. Redlick notes that there's no time limit on interrogations. However, research shows that false confessions become more common the longer a suspect is questioned. What we know about typical interrogations is that they last anywhere between 30 minutes and about two hours. And, you know, what's kind of a seminal study demonstrated, they looked at uh, proven false confessions. And of the ones that had recorded the time of the interrogation, it was an average of 16 hours that these false confessions were obtained which can be an extremely toxic environment and mentally exhausting for anyone, guilty or not. Join us next week as we discuss how wrongful convictions impact a person's health and the systemic changes that will help law enforcement catch the real criminals. 
You can find more information about Dr. Allison Redlick and all of our guests on our website, radiohealthjournal.org. For more behind the scenes, follow Radio Health Journal on Facebook, Instagram, and X. Our writer-producer is Kristen Farah. Our production manager is Jason Dickey. I'm Greg Johnson. Coming up next week on Radio Health Journal. My endocrinologist, who's been in practice for over 30 years, said to me, I've never seen anything like this. We've thrown the kitchen sink at you. I think you need to see a specialist. A curable condition that causes infertility, but is rarely mentioned by OBGYNs. Then, do wrongful convictions lead to an early grave? What we found was that almost six times as many exonerees have passed than what the CDC would predict. We found that the exonerees died over 13 years earlier than expected. All that and more on Radio Health Journal. I'm Elizabeth Westfield, host of Radio Health Journal. If you enjoy listening to Radio Health Journal, you'll also like our sister show, Viewpoints, which covers a wide array of topics from education to history to the environment. Here's a preview of what they're covering this week on Viewpoints. We just meet to get together, to help each other out, to support each other. The fun and camaraderie of running with others. Then... Here's an ancient culture that has been closed off from us that nobody knew what was going on. And then someone finds us for a set in stone and all of a sudden they can learn what that culture was all about. How a 2,000-year-old stone unlocked the secrets of an ancient civilization. I'm Marty Peterson. And I'm Gary Price. These stories in-depth this week on your public affairs magazine, Viewpoints. And that's Radio Health Journal for this week. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram to learn more. And check Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify for a library of past programs. Plus, you'll always find previous segments and information about our guests at RadioHealthJournal.org. Join us again next week for another edition of Radio Health Journal.